Good morning. I'm so happy and privileged to be here with you this morning. Um, it's, it's a little bit emotional for me, as you might imagine. We've been here for a year and reconnected with many people that we were close to before we moved to Texas. And we've reconnected, with, or we've connected with people we never knew and have built relationships, and we are so thankful for our time here. Um, it's been an honor and a privilege being a part of this body of people, the Lord's people. And I don't know if many of you know how much you've impacted our lives significantly, and I thank you for that. I don't want to take away from this time in the Lord's Word, but I do want to mention that. And that leads me into my thought for today. As I prepared and was praying on what the Lord would have me to preach this morning, I want to leave you with something. You know, there's change in the air. Not just with us leaving, but the turn of another year. And this is the time of year when people, they make resolutions and they decide what they're going to cut out or what they're going to add to their lives. They evaluate themselves based on the fact that it's the turn of a new year. And with these things in mind, I ask myself, what is the greatest need in the world? What is the greatest need in the entire world today? What is the greatest need in the life of churches that exist in this world today? What is the greatest need in the life of this church? What is the greatest need in the life of the individual members in this church? What is the greatest need in your life? And I'm speaking to two types of people this morning. Coincidentally, there only are two types of people. If you are born again, if you're in Christ, I have something to tell you. And if you're not, if you're lost and separated from Him, whether you're accepted even as a member in this body, if you don't know Him, I have something to say to you today as well. I'll give you at the outset, I've titled this sermon, The Power and Presence of Christ. And you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're going to look at and work through the first five verses of John chapter 15. And the reason this is so significant to me is because I see the Lord's hand and power at work in this body of people already. And so I ask myself, I don't believe the Lord and the elders and the church body has given me this opportunity lightly without much consideration. And so I don't want to waste the time. I want to redeem this time for your sakes, that you might really be affected, that you might be given something from God's Word today that revives your heart if you're weak and weary, saint. And if you're yet to be converted, would open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. But I want to see this church continue on in power, serving the Lord faithfully. And there are a lot of methods that people put into practice in order to try to do that. And considering their sanctification, that can oftentimes be as much a stumbling block and hindrance as a help. And so before I ramble on much more, I'm going to get into the text here and read for you. We'll read the first five verses and then pray and begin. John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Bow with me. Our Heavenly Father, 
Lord, as we heard in the Psalms, I pray that you would cause your face to shine upon us. Father, that we would look to you as our strength, as our hope, as our source of all things in this life and in the life to come. That that we would never be tempted or distracted by our own efforts, our own abilities, our own powers. I thank you for the sharp sword of your word that cuts through our suppositions about ourselves and the things that we think we're able to do. And I thank you for your sharp and clear word that calls us to the only one who can do anything in and through us. Father, I pray that this morning you would accompany your word with power, that you would, in fact, rend the heavens and come down, that we would not simply hear the gospel in word only, but in manifestation and demonstration of the Spirit and power. Father, show us what this means. We want to know You. I pray that we would be more aware of Your presence here with us. That we might be conformed to the image of Your Son and grow in relationship with You. Father, build and grow, strengthen Your church today. Give me strength where I have none. In Jesus' name, Amen. The first thing, I've got some preliminary thoughts about this text, and hopefully you'll see how they connect as we work through this. But in this text that we're looking at today, we have yet another clear example of how timeless and relevant the Word of God is. Because that's the argument you hear from a lot of people outside of the church, and you're going to see how this is connected to those who profess to be in Christ. As a matter of fact, our context today is specifically talking to those that consider themselves to be a part of the vine. They consider themselves to be a part. Even it says that if you're in me and you don't bear fruit, the the father, the vine dresser, will cut you away and be cast into the fire. But this is in the context of those who profess to be in Christ. So it's relevant here, but just in the beginning we'll consider this The word today, the thought today, is concerning God's word, concerning the Holy Scriptures. This is the word today. It says it's irrelevant. It's outdated. It doesn't deal with the issues of life. It doesn't deal with the issues of man as he is today in the world. We're so much more advanced, especially in our Western civilization. We're so intelligent. Our medicine is so far surpassing those in the Scripture times. That we as a society and culture, we're a stronger, more capable, better man. And we look at ourselves with this American pride and we say that I can do things well. And the best thing about us, we're so thankful for our country. Why? Because it's full of good people. And us, our good families, our families that have dinner together on Sunday and spend time together in the holidays, especially in this season that we just went through. We think of ourselves as those who are... Better, we need less help, we believe sometimes, than those in Scripture. But Jesus' words to us here drive right at the heart of every human being. The heart of the human condition is our pride, our arrogance, and our belief that we can please God, that we can do what is acceptable to Him in and of ourselves. And I believe that this is a serious danger and problem in the life of those who make up the church. That they be tempted to believe that now that I'm in Christ, now that I've been born again and given this new heart, that I've got this capacity within me to do good and please God apart from Him. That He did it and took His hand off. And that shows itself evident when we live our lives detached from a desperation and prayer and dependence on Him. When we're not abiding in Him, as He says. But the Scriptures are relevant, and they are timeless, and they deal specifically with the issues of our heart. But to just emphasize this a little more, because we've been indoctrinated. We've been told as a society and culture a number of things about ourselves, about our own hearts, about our condition in this world. And it's, these things are intentional. It's a work of the devil and it's a work of our own flesh and desires that we have in our dark hearts. But the culture has a common theme regarding the human condition. Tell me if any of these expressions uh, are familiar to you. Follow your heart. 
follow your heart. You know, whenever Rain and I were at the children's home, uh, I would tell the girls anytime they would ask me, uh, what should I do, Mr. Priest? I would say, well, follow your heart. Because I would labor to teach them in devotions all the time that their heart is deceitful and desperately sick, as the Scripture says. And that they can't trust their heart. They can't follow it. They need to follow the Word of God. They need to follow Christ and the leading of the Spirit, not their own hearts. And every time the girls would say, Mr. Priest, the heart is deceitful. Well, they remember that now. But the system of this world tells them and us the exact opposite. Follow your heart. If it is to be, it's up to me. I've got to do this. The only person you can count on is yourself. You ask someone to do something and they fail. And you think, oh, I should have just done it myself. And then it would have been done right. You can count on yourself. That's what we're told. Count on yourself. Or God helps those who help themselves. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, no, I know we need Jesus. So I know we need God's help. You realize what you're saying is you think God needs your help. Whenever you have that outlook, if you don't see him as the source of everything good, as the fountain from which every blessing flows, as the father of lights that every good and perfect gift comes from, there's no shifting of shadow or turning in him, but there is in you. And you see, God doesn't need your help in order to do things. You are utterly dependent upon him. But that's not the message of this culture. Regardless of how much you might or I might try to deny it, even as Christians, we have a tendency to view ourselves as the rulers of our own destinies. And this belief is captured in this poem. And you've probably heard at least the last line of this poem. But I'm going to read for you it in its entirety. This was written by a man named William Ernest Henley. And he lived at the la- in the, during the last half of the 19th century. He died just at the turn of 1900 or so, I think 1906. And his father died. His father was a poor man, and he was, I think, a book, book salesman. And he died whenever um, William was 12 years old. And then William was diagnosed with uh, a tubercular arthritis, and he had to have one of his legs amputated. And he wrote a series of poems while he was in the hospital after the amputation, and this is one of them as a young man. And listen to this. And let me warn you, be devastated by it. Look at your own heart and your own view of this world and your own view of your condition as a human being in light of this. This is what he said. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is chilling. And that is a snapshot of what is in the heart of every human being in this world. That is a snapshot of your heart. And you see, there's this even an acknowledgement in here. Whatever God's may be, looking to chance and circumstance, and saying, I'm going to overcome chance and circumstance. Let me tell you, there are no such things as chance and circumstance detached from the living God. This message, this is the message of the world. And it's been the same throughout the Scriptures. From the word go in the very beginning. Adam and Eve fell. What was their 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 Result, their, their response to the fall, their response to the circumstance, to the chance, as the world calls it. What is their response to the problem? We'll cover it ourselves. We'll do this. We'll take care of this. And it cannot avail. And it will not. And throughout the testimony of the history of Scripture in the world has been man trying to take care of the problems in their lives in this world. But they're fleeting and temporal and they can't do it. I believe that is a clear picture 
of the human heart. And we were raised in this culture. We've been indoctrinated, as I said, to believe certain things about ourselves. We believe that man is basically good. We believe that we're born with a propensity to try to do what's right. And yeah, we do bad things, but, you know, everybody does and it's not that big of a deal. But it's not something we would call evil. I got to speak at my grandmother's funeral a couple years ago. And I wanted to preach the gospel. Go figure. And in the moment, I was giving a testimony of my life as a child and how evil I was and sinful and how it manifested itself that I got in trouble a lot. And, you know, it it was commented on by people who knew me, even teachers at the time, that said, you know, you weren't really that bad. You were just an honorary kid, but you were a good kid. See, they're downplaying the reality of the horrors of evil that exists in the human heart. We do that. We live in a society and culture that says we ought to do that. I was talking with someone recently, talking about the sin in the heart of a child, matter of fact, their child. And they said, well, you know, I just need to figure out how to deal with them and point them on a better way. How do I reach them? And I said, the problem is that their heart is evil. And they were drastically offended. Because we're raised in a society that says these young children, they're born basically pure, innocent. We use that language as if there's no, they're not born as David was, brought forth in iniquity and sin, conceived in this sin. It's the way we come into this world. And we maybe talk about this in here, and you hear this sound teaching all the time, I know, but be confronted by the fact that this is who you are by nature. This is where we're going with this. Your nature is opposed to God. It's opposed to God. But what does Jesus say concerning these things? What is Jesus' word concerning the human condition and the power of Almighty man? Of our ability, of our ability to hold God's feet to the fire, because if we say the right things or if we do the right things, and we can talk about this in the... Word of faith and charismatic circles where they say that they can twist God's arm by using the right language and that their words have more power than God's authority and sovereignty. We can say that to them, but then we have to look at ourselves and say we do the same thing. Because in the reform circles, if we have do our catechisms and if we study the scriptures and spend a lot of time in prayer and we know right theology, then we ought to be able to influence change. We ought to grow and be sanctified because of these Formula things that we're ticking off and stepping through as if God owes us because we did those things. And He doesn't. You see, those things, if God receives them and is pleased in them, it's because He was the one doing them in you. And that's where we're going today. But what does Jesus say about this almighty man and the problem that exists within him? He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine. What does that tell us? That there are many false vines. You see that? There are many things that we put our hope in which promise success and deliverance, but are all empty and vain. It's like those leaves that were sewn together by Adam and Eve. They didn't do the trick. They couldn't do it. Dead leaves. They can't cover. They can't cover. You need an eternal, secure covering. Not one that will fade away. One that truly covers. And this is the thing that we do. We're so quickly, so quick to abandon God and look to ourselves and look to other vines than the true vine. What is this true vine, Jesus Christ? He's the source of life to the branch. And we look at our lives and like I said, we may look to a catechism, maybe the vine you're looking to. If I catechize my child enough, That is the key. And if you do that and do that and do that and do that, then God will save them. Don't mishear me, church. We ought to catechize our children and train them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But apart from the power of the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ, there will be no conversion in your child. We're dependent on the vine. There's no life apart from the vine. There are false vines all around us. Justin, preaching through Galatians, recently dealt with it. Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. 
other gospels, other vines, other sources of life, other sources of hope. If my family looks a certain way, if I can get them all to dress, act, and talk in a specific manner, and it's something I can be proud of. I look back on a heritage, and believe me, this affects me. When I look back on a heritage of family who loved one another and spent time together and said good things about the Lord, and I look to that heritage, and that is my vine. I'm attached to that vine according to the flesh. There's no life there. No eternal life there. That, the fruit that comes from that vine is good and it's a grace from God, but it's not eternal. And it will not do before God. That's not, that's not what we're saying. That's not what the Scripture teaches. There is one true vine. Only one. False vines promise fruit that endures, but never deliver on that promise. Consider Moses, who says in Hebrews that he would rather be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's a momentary pleasure. There's a momentary satisfaction. There's a momentary fix through false vines. False sources. You see, this, this is where we're going. The, the source of power in the life of a Christian. The source of power. Of power to what? That's what we're going to get into. But the source of strength. The source of security and wholeness in a Christian comes from the vine. And if you're looking to the wrong vine, that is when you will suffer. That is when you will be weak and without sustenance. The next part of this, and he says, and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Notice here that the father is directly involved in the bringing forth of fruit. You see that? This is not something. This is a Trinitarian fruit bearing that the God has, is involved here. Jesus, the Son, is the vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. And it's the Spirit that will hear the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit that comes is by the Spirit. This is Trinitarian. That God the Father is not detached, looking on, somehow uninvolved in this. That they're working together. <coughs> that ought to bring you comfort as a Christian. That the fruit that is born in your life is a result of the triune God at work in you. To produce that fruit. Many people wrongly believe that the Father exists in some far away distant realm. Either unconcerned or uninvolved in the world today. And unconcerned or uninvolved are bad. But maybe the worst is powerless. Unable to do anything about it. But all three are horrifying and untrue. The Father here is said to be the vine dresser. He's intimately concerned with this fruit that comes, with caring for the branches and the vine in this garden. He's intimately concerned with it. He oversees this. And this is a Scripture that just brings out the reality of God, of the Father's involvement in the world today. People paint the picture that God the Father in the Old Testament was this cruel, evil, domineering God, hate-filled God, and that Jesus comes along, as we heard this morning, Effeminate, that he is he's weak, that he, he's not the same as that tyrant God of the Old Testament. And we see here that the Father and the Son are in perfect harmony in the ministry that takes place to his people. Perfect unity. Second Corinthians 6 and verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, there's two realities here. <coughs> Who is it that made his dwelling among us and walked among us? But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, we just celebrated Christmas. God incarnate, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. According to this promise that's referenced here. But He is the living God. And He is concerned with the goings-on of our lives and of the fruit we bear. He's active. On to verse 2. It says, Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. One of the most glorious and terrifying promises in the entire Bible 
is that God will make certain that every one of His children bear fruit. That's what it says. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Most people read this. And what they read when they see Philippians 2.12 is, Get out there and just work it out. You know, you've got to examine yourself, work out this salvation, and figure out if you're doing the right things, if you've done all the right things, work it out. You know, this is, a, this is an agricultural term. This working out is the digging up, the, the examination, like you would dig up something in the ground that's been planted to look at it and see what does this look like. It's an examination, but why are we examining? What's the context here? Why should we do it with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for His good pleasure. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, He takes away. He produces fruit in the branches that are His. And so if you don't see fruit in your life, be afraid. If you call yourself His, (coughs) fear and trembling. Because God is the one doing this in you. His name is upon you. If you're His, you're bearing His name. And He will not let you walk and continue in ungodliness and filth. Not bearing fruit if you are His. Work it out. Examine. Is God working in me? Is the presence of Christ a reality in my life? That's what He's saying here. The branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we'll read later on, if you continue past where we're going to stop, that it's cast into the fire. Let me give a very direct warning to you. That if you believe that you are saved, that you are a Christian, you may be deceived. Notice this language. Every branch in me. This isn't saying that someone who is saved, who's been truly converted and is upheld by the power of God and is eternally secure can fall away. Every branch in me is talking about someone who identifies themselves as being connected to Him. Every branch, every person, every individual. Maybe you've professed Christ for 60 years. Or maybe you're a new Christian. Is God at work in your life? I'm not asking you, do you have a checklist that you can show me? Is the living God at work in you? Is God doing something? Is God bringing forth fruit in you? Because if He's not, you ought to be afraid. You ought to examine these things. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Again, this is such an encouraging thing to us today here, church. He says, He prunes. If it bears fruit, the Father prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Again, the Father is committed to producing fruit in the life of the branches. But here, notice the emphasis here on this pruning. Um, I've got a, uh, I'm friend close to a dear family here outside of Ada that have had um, peach orchards most of their life. And some of you from Stratford, you know, you're all familiar with peach trees. And there's a pruning process. But you need to consider what it means to prune something, to prune this vine and the branches. To prune a branch means you cut off excess parts of the branch that absorb water and nutrients and take away from the overall health of the branch. You understand that? That there's a cutting process here. And you may look at something that's... I mean, here's the reality. You can look at a tree, especially a peach tree. You can look at this tree, and it can be enormous and dead and unhealthy. And the peaches, the fruit that it bears, sour, bitter, not good. Why? Because it hasn't been pruned. Because there's something about this tree that is limiting its ability to bear good fruit. And the Scripture says that the Father is concerned enough with those branches which are His to prune them. To cut off those things that limit the health of the thing. Consider for Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off 
and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. This pruning is, is significant. It's significant. And God the Father is faithful to prune these branches. He's faithful. But next, consider this, that when you prune a branch, if you cut a tree, it hurts the branch at the point where the cut is made. It hurts. If you think that this pruning is this kind of, well, we're going to freeze it off. No, that's not what's being said to you. There's a cutting here. There's pain that happens. Maybe not to a tree, but as we experience pain, there's pain that happens. It hurts whenever the things that we love that are hindering us from bearing the fruit of God that endures, when those things are stripped away, it hurts. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Our afflictions which bring forth this fruit. Next in verse 3, he goes on. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I hope that you hear that and you have a sigh of rejoicing. Already you are clean. And I really am thankful that Jesus said it this way because our immediate temptation after hearing these words about bearing fruit and not bearing fruit, being cut away and destroyed and all these things, the temptation is that, okay, I've got to produce fruit. (coughs) If I'm not bearing fruit, then I'm not going to be saved. If I'm not bearing fruit, then I won't be accepted before God. I'm the captain of my faith, so I've got to go out there and produce this fruit so that I can go to heaven. I've got to do this. And Jesus is quick to tell us, it's not on the basis of your fruit that you've been made clean. I've already made you clean. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You've already been washed by the blood of Christ if you are in Him. So do not look to the fruit that you bear as some sort of tally list that you can present to God and say, Look, God, look, elders, look, church, I'm bearing fruit. That means I'm a Christian. No, you're a Christian. You are accepted by God because you've been made clean by the words of Christ. That's what he's saying here. Nothing else. Nothing else. There are so many false vines that give us assurance in this life. So many things we look to our own fruit and the approval and acceptance of others. So many things. We'll evaluate our finances. And if I'm doing financially poor, my health's failing. God must not be pleased with me. Don't you understand, dear one, there's only one way to be pleasing to God. And it is by the blood of Jesus Christ, ultimately. So Jesus confronts this and lets us know that. And here's just one beautiful and glorious example of how we are made clean by the words, the word of Christ. This is how this takes place. In John 6, verse 67, Jesus had immediately just been telling this huge number of people that's following him, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And many of them, the majority, left. And Jesus turns to the disciples, to the twelve, and he says, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the vine. Jesus, Jesus showed Peter something. Here, Peter is able to see. You're the vine. Apart from you, there is no life. And this is significant. I love the... And I don't know it exactly, but the quote from R.C. Sproul, a big problem in the church today is so many people don't believe that God invests His power in His Word. And that's not the case. The power of God is manifested to us in His Word. That's why we put such an emphasis on the preaching of His Word here. It's because we know how difficult the life is in this world. We know how, how hard it is when you're faced with temptation and trial and responsibility in this life. And you can't do it. You can't do it apart from the power of God. We deceive ourselves when we think that we can. We know that you need the power of God at work in your life. That's why we proclaim His Word to you. Because it's His Word that gives you the power in this world, in this life, to live the Christian life. That is the greatest need, by the way. Is the power of God in your life. He goes on in verse 4. He says, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
Look at the first part of this. Abide in me and I in you. There is an intimate relationship here. This isn't merely a closeness or a fondness of. It's intimate. I in you. Abide in me and I in you. There's this closeness, this personal bond and relationship here. The life that sustains the branch and produces fruit flows directly from the vine. Consider this, this life that comes from the vine. John 1, one. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And there's no life. There's no source of life, spiritually or otherwise. All of creation is held together at the word of His power. But there's no life apart from this one, this word. This Christ is the source of life. And it's not as though you get a little sprinkle of life at the moment of conversion. And then you live the rest of your life basically on that supply. As if He's not... Daily, maintaining the supply of life in you. If Jesus were to withhold His hand of sustaining power and life in you, there would be none. There would be none. He ever lives to make intercession for us. By His Word, He sustains the life of every one of us. The true vine is the source of all life. Colossians 1.17, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There's nothing. If Jesus is not holding it together by His strength and power and might, the might of our God, the God-man Jesus holding it together, there's nothing. Oblivion. Everything is gone. He is the Lord of all, and it is all His, and He sustains all. Next time you have an atheist ask you about your faith or condemn you about your faith. Just remind them of this. The grace of God is allowing you to rail against Him. But it will be turned to wrath someday. Jesus Christ is sustaining them in that moment. What mercy. What mercy that He sustains you until you are converted. He holds all things together. He's the source of all life in this world. But particularly the life within the soul, the life of God, the life that comes from God in the soul of a man is through the vine. It must be from the vine, the true vine. Next in verse 4, he says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. A branch that is separated from the vine And I say this because this is what a lot of us think sometimes. It says a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. And so we like to think that, yeah, I need Jesus. And then I come to Jesus, and then all of a sudden me and Jesus are working it out together. You know, it's we think of it as two two separate organisms that are basically have a mutual end in mind. And they're working together to accomplish that mutual goal. That's not what is depicted here. A branch that is separated from the vine isn't lying on the ground trying its hardest to bear fruit. Correct me if I'm wrong. A branch that is separated from the vine is dead. If, there's no, if it's not connected, vitally connected, not stapled on, not tied on with a rope, but vitally connected, then it is dead. It is dead. There's only life in the branch when it's connected to the vine. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in trespasses and sin. You were dead. As long as you were cut off and separated from the vine, you were dead. Unbeliever, child here today, listen to me. As long as you're cut off from the vine, you're dead. You have no life, no hope apart from this vine. And similarly to this dead branch, we, and we're unconnected to the vine, we're not cooperating, even when we are connected to the vine. As Christians, receiving our life and strength from the vine, we're not cooperating with the vine in order to accomplish a common goal. The intimate relationship between a vine and its branch is that of being one and the same organism. There's oneness here. 
Now, you can definitely go in the ditch heretically with this doctrine. But we are one in Christ. One flesh with Christ. We have been connected to Him vitally. There's a, there's a vitality. Whenever you, have, you share the same life source, that's one. If you have this oneness that we have with Christ and the Father and the Spirit, that's what Jesus prayed for us in John 17. Verse 20, He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may know... So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen to this. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. That our relationship and bond connection with Christ could be paralleled to his relationship with the Father. This is an impossibility. This is incomprehensible that we could have a relationship, an intimate relationship with the vine, with the Lord Jesus this way. But that's what he prayed for. And you as the branches are not contributing to the vine. The vine doesn't need the branches. The branches only draw energy and strength from the vine. They don't help the vine. You see, the the vine is the intercessor. The vine is what is producing the life, the water, the nutrients from the root. Jesus gives these things to us. We're not contributing and helping Him out. Everything we receive is from Him, our source. But we're convinced otherwise sometimes. Verse 5, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so far, we've, I've really been emphasizing the life that is in the, in the branch that comes from the vine. But he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. This fruit that comes forth from the branches is a direct result of the Presence and sustaining power of the vine. There's no fruit. There's no fruit if the vine is taken away. There's no fruit of righteousness, love, peace, joy. There's no fruit in your life apart from the vine. And see, we live so backwards to this so much of the time. We see ourselves as loveless, joyless. Hostile with others, self-centered and selfish. And we think, oh, I really need to do better in these areas of my life because I know it's sin against God. And you focus on striving after those things. Those things aren't the issue. Those things are the grace of God showing you there's an issue with the vine here. You're not drawing source from the vine in this instance. That's why Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me. You need the source of your strength and your fruit to come as a result of the vine. Turn with me to Matthew 28. It's funny, when I began studying and preparing, my mind went this direction towards the subject I initially started in Matthew 28. And I saw something here that but John 15 just did such a better job of dealing with the reality of our need. But in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you. It is His promise that He will remain. So what abiding is, to remain alongside or under, or connected to, to remain. Stay with me. Jesus said, I'm staying with you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. But here's what I want to emphasize here. You know, if we're on the right track when we read these words here, we see 
where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth is given me. Go therefore. See, it starts this way. Jesus has been given authority over me and told me to go. So I'm going. He has authority over me to send me. But then as you study the Scriptures and you see the flow of thought here, you see, go therefore in light of the fact that He has authority and power over all things. That apart from His power and authority over all things, there is no success or growth or strength or power in the church in this endeavor. That the commission itself is hinged upon the power and authority of Jesus Christ. And then you begin to go with confidence knowing that Christ is doing this. He is building His church, not me. That He is the one doing this. And I just get, I'm privileged to be a part of this. (coughs) But then you look further and you see this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I feel like we stop short according to this text. If we see the power and authority of Christ over this commission as only pertaining to the making of disciples, initial salvation. If we stop short there and don't see that we go in the strength of Christ in the baptizing and adding to church membership, the overseeing eye of Christ over all things, and yes, even in teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us, that apart from the power and authority of Christ in the life of those who have been converted, there will be no power to Observe all that He has commanded. That He is the one supplying that. (coughs) This gospel, from start to finish, is hinged upon the power of Christ. We experience so much grace and so much blessings. And we have been given new desires and affections and hearts. But see, we have a problem because we misunderstand and misinterpret the idea of the supernatural. We think about the supernatural as a, a sea party. Or someone who's dead in a cooler somewhere, sitting up and coming back to life. And we, we dramatize things and make them flashy and showy. And that's how megachurches are built. Put on some smoke and mirrors and lights and do some things and get people going. And I'm not denying the supernatural things happen in those places, but I don't believe it's the Holy Spirit accompanying those things. There's a lot of testimonies of some pretty spooky stuff happening to people who call upon spirits to do things. But our problem is that God is not the author of confusion. And He works within His ordered creation that He has made supernaturally. For example, if I wake up in the morning and I'm able to love my wife and put her first, that is supernatural. Not in the sense (coughs) that it is some miraculous thing that happens that's not, not a common occurrence in the life of God's people, but in the fact that it goes against my nature. It goes against the nature that I was born with, which loves me more than her, which loves me first. It's supernatural in that God is working something different in me. And He is supplying the power to do that. And you see, a lot of the times we don't even see the hand of God in our lives. We think that it's only some dramatic external thing that we can see when God is working powerfully. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe in our text in John that there is this intimate relationship almost of a face-to-face experiential encounter. And I beg God, I pray even this morning, that He would manifest Himself to us. Not that He's not here, but that we would be aware of His presence. That we would know that He's here with us. That we would have His presence. When we're talking about this, let's go on in our text. It continues in verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. See, the last part of this verse, we're confronted by a harsh reality that I believe myself as well as most other Christians are slow to admit. That once 
we've been born again, we still believe that we can produce fruit apart from the ongoing and supernatural power of Christ. We do. We live in this world. Our tendency is to do it ourselves. If you give me something I can do, I can read my Bible. I can pray. I can catechize my kids. I can study theology. I can serve in the church. I can tithe. There's a lot of things that I can do. Let me tell you something I can't do. I can't bear fruit. Not that endures. I can't bear this enduring fruit apart from the vine. Let that sink in, church. The single biggest problem in the life of this church or any other is a lack of manifestation of the power of God in you and in me. And you see, that is not saying it's God's fault. If that's your idea, you're just going further and further away. It's not God's fault. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. The problem is that we don't draw near to Him. Now, hear me, He's sovereign over everything. There's nothing, not a single maverick molecule in the universe. I agree with that. The Scriptures agree with that more importantly. But what we need is God at work. You see, whenever God is at work and people, when He's at work, when He is manifesting His power, you see, I I thought of this when I was praying this morning, the Scripture that says that the Gospel came not in word only, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And there are churches out there that think that means you flop on the floor like a fish or run your head through the wall. And I don't know exactly what that means because I wasn't there to see the demonstration of spirit and power. But this I know, that it was God who was doing it. It was a demonstration of the power of God. And whatever that means, that's what I want to see in the life of this church, of us, of this congregation of people, in your life individually. I want to see that. That's what Jesus is saying here. This fruit that comes as a result of Him. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. 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 And listen, listen, just, some, just a thought. Chew on this. Consider this with me. Most of the time, if somebody uses the word sanctification, what do we think of? What is our initial thought? We think that's, well, you become more and more holy. More and more moral. When, you're, when we say we're conformed to the image of Christ, we immediately think of externals. And even internals, we think that, well, I don't lust or I don't, you know, have these idolatrous thoughts or or whatever. I don't hate. But that's not quite what sanctification is. That's what sanctification produces. Sanctification, and I'll give you a scripture that defends the statement. I'll give you the statement first. Sanctification is not a divine formula whereby we please God. It is the ongoing work of Christ to show us more and more of the Father, which produces a desire for Him rather than sin. We love formulas, but that's not what sanctification is. We look to what's visible to us. That I'm growing in holiness. And it's not necessarily wrong to use that to describe the process of sanctification. But how God sanctifies us, cuts us away from where we were and moves us. And sets us apart unto Himself. Is whenever we see Him in Christ. And our hearts explode with a love for what we see that's greater than what we used to love. That is the process of sanctification where you love Him more and more and more. You see, Paul in Philippians, whenever he says, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting all of those things before, all of my accolades and accomplishments and achievements and righteousness externally, he says, my sanctification in that text is to know Him. Those things are done in light of Him. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Knowing Him, seeing Him. And here's my text to defend my statement. 2 Corinthians 
says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. When you behold Christ, He's the one who shows us the Father. You see the glory of God. That's what's going to go on in the next chapter in 2 Corinthians to tell us in chapter 4. You see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You're overwhelmed. You're captivated. You love the glory of it. You see it and you desire it. Your affection is set on Him. It's not, I can't do this and i got to do that. That's dangerous. That's legalism. In any shade, any form, you see a mark of holiness and of character that is aligned with the Scriptures, with the commands of Christ in one who is pursuing Him. And I charge you, I charge myself, not to be found looking to your fruit bearing. Don't look, don't navel gaze. Look inwardly and see... I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. God is pleased because of this. Look, I'm bearing fruit. Because let me tell you something. You can trick me. You can convince the elders here that you're bearing fruit for a time. It will eventually manifest itself. But here's the issue. Do you want to bear fruit? Do you desire it? Do you crave it? I heard a man one time say, I think he was out of context, but I appreciate his zeal. He said, I haven't resisted unto blood. And he was talking about working. He wanted to honor God by having a good work ethic. He said, I need to be bloody in tears. And he was fired up. I don't think that was the context of the verse. But do you desire to be holy? You can desire a lot of things. You can look to a lot of false vines. The one true vine produces true fruit that endures in you. And that's what we need by His power. So I started off and I read that quote by Henley. What of those who boast in the almighty power of man? You catch that line in there? My head is bloody, but unbowed. Not bowing my head to anyone or anything. People get mad at the Calvinist God because why? Because he tells them that their will will take them to hell. That's why. Our will, our strength, our fortitude, our ability to do things. So what do we say to those who boast in this almighty power of man? Would I be wrong in interpreting Jesus' statement here? Fools! Hopeless and helpless! You can't do it. You can't please God. He said in the context of the church, the context of people who are born again, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear that? How much more so those who are not united to the vine in any way? You think you're going to unite yourself to the vine even once you're connected? You can't do anything yourself. Are you somehow going to get yourself attached? You can't. It's foolishness. The strength of Almighty Man is an empty, vain lie. And we cannot please God. We can't come into right standing with Him. Jesus said, you're already clean by the word that I spoke to you. And it's only this mighty Savior who has conquered sin, who can save us from it initially and keep us from it continually. You cannot keep yourself in right standing with God. The message of this text is to abide. It's relational. It's pursuing Him. Beholding is in a glass. This glory. This is, this is what the Christian life is. You know, we, we, we deal so much with denying. We work so hard to say all of this traditionalism in these other churches is wrong and foolish. And we, we strive after truth and understanding and theology. And we ought to. And we look to our creeds and our catechisms and our confessions and our church history and we set up these formulas and we demand and require things like seminaries and the exact perfect representation of Christian morality before a person can be married. We demand these things. And we say we can make a person in a society, a people, holy. 
through these means. And the truth is we can't. We can't. It's do these things. There are plenty of commands from Christ that we ought to be pursuing to obey and praying for obedience from Him. Don't mishear me. But don't lose this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I wonder how many here today maintain a profession. They believe that they're saved. They believe that they've been born again. People whom I love. They call themselves Christians. But they're more like Henley. That they're determined. They're determined that they're going to do it. That they don't need God. They don't need... They can do it themselves. I think what God's may be for myself... I hope that that's not you today. I hope that if you're outside of Christ, that you would look to Him. That you would see that He is the one that supplies life. That's what you need. You need life in your soul. And no Christian believer that this same life that He begins in you, that He pours into you, He continues to supply. And the fruit that that life produces is from Him as well. We have no boasting in this. But let me give us a very harsh warning in closing to those who hear this message and they look at the sin in their life and they're tempted to say, well, I'll just wait on the vine to bear more fruit in me. Be careful. Did you read that? Those who don't bear fruit the Father will cut away. Those who maintain a false profession but don't bear fruit shall be cut away. That even say, I am in Him, the language of the text, in Him will be cut away. What this ought to produce in you and me is a longing, a desire to abide in the vine. To behold Christ. And He's told us where this life, where this cleanness, where this wholeness comes from, His Word. That's what He said. And I hope you understand, and this is, this is the last thing. I know I've went a little long. The reason we're so prone looking to ourselves and our growth as Christians and our sanctification is because ultimately we see ourselves as the authority over good and evil. And sure, God has helped me to see what's right, but if I'm really dependent on Him, if I'm really, if He must be the one to do it and I don't get to have my hands on it, then there's nothing to boast in. And sure, we'll say that about salvation, that I didn't do it. It's all of grace and all glory to Him. But we want to claim some credit whenever we evaluate ourselves in the life of the church. And I want to warn you from that. And I want to tell you this, and this is it, closing. That Jesus Christ, He didn't come into this world and become a man. God did not become a man in Jesus Christ in order to save a people who were doing okay, who had a pretty good sense of right and wrong, wrong that had good hearts that they should follow, but only messed up here and there. First off, even if you only messed up one time, you're guilty and deserving of eternal hell. So the Scripture teaches, and I won't back up from it. But the reality is we weren't people that were afflicted and victimized by everything around us in our circumstances. Now, like Henley said, chance and circumstance. Jesus Christ came into this world and became a man, took on a human flesh because man is evil. Evil in his core, his heart. His condition is consumed with self, lust, pride, and everything in this world other than God. And He came and suffered and died and shed His blood on the cross under God the Father's wrath. Why? To purchase for Himself a people. And He did it. 
Make no mistake that for those whom He shed His blood, He will produce fruit. This sanctification process is hinged upon Christ because it's His work in you. He is the one who is working in you because you were bought with a price. And that's the argument. Time constrains me. There's so many scriptures we could consider about that. The argument, why pursue holiness? Why pray for holiness? Why pursue God? Because Christ shed His blood and died for you. You weren't bought with corruptible things, Peter says. But with the precious blood of Christ, He shed His blood for you. It's this love, this intimacy, this union with Him that produces true holiness in the life of a Christian. And the unbeliever must come to God through that vine, that one who shed His blood, or they cannot come at all. So I pray you're looking to the true vine today. So I'm going to pray, and I guess Brother Randy will come up for the Lord's Supper. Y'all bow with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your mercy. I thank You for Your kindness, Your power and grace. I thank You for reminding at least me of my need. I pray that that this truth, the reality of our need for You in all things, that Your power be poured out upon us, that we might love our wives and our children and be faithful with the Gospel and faithful in our giving in every area and avenue of our lives. Yes, even jobs and politics and all things, that we would be faithful, that we are unable to be faithful and bear fruit apart from You. I pray that that reality would drive us to our knees and to Your Word. Not to check a list, but to abide in a person. In the true vine, Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in His name. Amen.